afternoon. You are listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is me, Simon Tishko, and today's Isotopica is the Slightly Haunted, if not the Hauntological episode, which is um, a rather yummy term that um, I think is right up Resonance listeners' street. Or should we say Strass? I'm feeling quite continental today. Hauntology. It's a notion I first heard about uh, in an, a rather lovely article that you can find on Boing Boing by Mark Pilkington, all-round Renaissance man, publisher, and uh, also resonance broadcaster. And hauntology draws on notions first introduced by Jacques Derrida back in 1993, where he talks about the spectre of Marx and referring once again to the spectre of communism haunting the West and this notion of haunting and spectres and capitalism and commodification and other such terms are very much coming to the fore in this postmodern age that we have right now. It always had had, in fact. Is it the end of history? Who knows? But I felt it was certainly the end of something last week when I went and recorded a freeze special, which is mostly marked in this broadcast today by me reading from the 1948... uh, It's called The Happy Book for Boys. And I'm actually making a reading from that under my duvet, uh, under an Arts Council installation in West London called Flight, which some of you will be familiar with. So that's me being very Yoko Ono, very performance-like, and further on in the episode there will be Jack Derrida talking about the notion of the spectre, about the notion of Le Fantôme, um, from the 1983 Mullen film Ghost Dance, which is an absolutely spectacular movie. Uh, we showed it at the really free school last year and I really recommend you look out for that. Um, Derrida explains his notions in French so I will be broadcasting subtitles to all of you that are listening with teletext. Um, there'll be a number of attenuated 78s with that little bit of extra hauntologicalness added to them. There's also a few soundscape-type recordings made at the Freeze Art Fair, almost much against my better judgement, but nevertheless a group of ageing men of the art world who should know much better, chatting away around the land of Babel. And, as ever, there's further details of these issues raised on my website, which is www.theculture.net. Follow the links for resonance and you can find details there anyway enough of me nattering today this is me simon tishko this is resonance 104.4 fm this is isotopica and i'm about to press the play button my heart is true it's just for you so won't you love me I only know there couldn't be my love without me. This pure passion's fire burning my heart aflame. This wild sweet desire yearning with bitter pain. This strange mystery, no matter where you may be, for all of eternity I know I love you. 
more still, my heart will thrill to your caresses. Amour, 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 my love is thine, tell me you are mine and end my loneliness. is free special which um, it's actually me hiding under my duvet um, under an aeroplane wing in my flat in Fulham and I've got a torch I've got a zoom recorder and from my bookshelf I picked out Warren's happy book for boys which just trying to see We've got a date on it. Kind of looks 1940s. It's the most beautiful paper. Really, really kind of nicely patterned. There's a lot of cotton in this paper. So what I thought, um, in um, response to the Freeze Art Fair, and everything that's going on in London, I'd... Um, complete a reading or two under the duvet. So look, I've gone, I've flicked into the middle of the book, nice little lino illustration there, and this is Baverstock's Pet Theory, which was written by um, Hilton Cleaver. Here we go. Dawson didn't really care for games. It was nothing to him that the school side needed him. If he didn't want to play on any particular day, it was only with the utmost tact that he could be persuaded to do so. He was fonder of animals. He had a pet or two, and he preferred to spend his time with them rather than playing games. The fellow who could do most with him was Baverstock. Between these two, there was a certain fellow feeling, the only difference being that Baverstock put the school before anything else. This is the story of the biggest problem Dawson ever set Baverstock. In the first place, Dawson was in a temper because ever since he had been able to walk, he had been able to ride a horse, and now a chance had been given to him to jump a horse in the horse show at Olympia. His uncle, who owned the horse, his father, who had taught him to ride, and Dawson himself had all appealed to the head for permission to leave school on the necessary days, and the head had refused to let him go. Dawson, as a result, would speak to no one. He was a sullen, he was in sullen and defiant form. 
and he would play no cricket. Lester, captain of the cricket, had tried the high hand with him and had left him alone when Dawson's eyes looked murder. There was a big match at the end of the week and he made it clear that he would take no part in it. And Dawson was a batman who could quite easily win a game by himself if he so cared. If he hit the ball at all, it generally went for six. To Baverstock's satisfaction, Dawson confided in him. He said, The head says I'm to play cricket for the school whether I like it or not. I didn't know cricket was compulsory here, and, what's more, I'm going to show him it isn't. But what I want now is to get out of here. It's stifling. If I stop in the school any longer, I shall choke. I'm going to slip out and go down to the river, and then get a boat and push it upstream, and fish, perhaps. I want you to come with me. Baverstock quickly thought things over. Probably this was the only chance he would have to spend a quiet hour or two with Dawson without forcing himself on the fellow. And it was probably the only chance, accordingly, of taking him around to a reasonable point of view. It was a walk of nearly a mile to the river, and all the way neither of them spoke. Baverstock, because he had a sense to treat Dawson as he wanted to be treated, and Dawson because he felt as if he spoke he would burst a blood vessel. Presently they were aboard a punt, and with a paddle each were slowly shoving upstream. This seemed to calm Dawson. It was quiet here. He was brooding with nature, and in fact Baverstock was still wondering why Dawson had bought him, when it was obvious he would rather be alone. Later they began to talk a little, not about cricket or horse shows or the head, but about what they saw. A heron crossed the river, its long legs stretching out behind, and Dawson turned his head for some time watching it. There were more hens and a water rat, and presently some duck, and Dawson raised his arm as if his hands held a gun, and he took an imaginary sight at them. Then he pulled into the bank and sat thinking. There's a little shop across the road where you can get ginger beer and stuff. Would you like to slip over and get some while I wait here? I'll give you the money. Baverstock agreed and departed. He was gone nearly ten minutes and when he came back the punt was deserted. Looking first one way and then the other for Dawson, he finally opened a bottle of ginger beer and began to drink it.
Then he knitted his brows and began to walk and call, and suddenly he checked and stared oddly at the surface of the river. A straw hat with a Milford hat band was floating on it. Barristock stared, and it seemed as if his heart had suddenly gone cold and inanimate, and he had risen into his throat and lodged there. Then it slowly came down again and settled in his boots. That's his heart in his boots there. He felt intensely alone and frightened. With an effort, he pulled himself together. It might not be Dawson's hat, and even if it was, it might only have dropped in by accident. But where was Dawson? Why had he left no note? Probably for the very good reason, thought Baverstock, that he'd had no pencil. Baverstock began throwing stones at the hat and tried to reach it with a paddle, then unhitched the punt and went after it. Yes, it was Dawson's. The only article of clothing anyone who had jumped in would not be able to keep on. With a blank lost stare, Baverstock still waited. Second thoughts persuaded him that it was not likely Dawson was drowned. The probably probability was that he had bunked. Perhaps he had heard a train and that suggested escape. He had to cross the river to get to the railway station, and if he had pushed the punt across, he could not have sent it back. But Baverstock, so he had left the punt and had either swum or waded across and lost his hat on the way. On a mad impulse of the moment, had Dawson heard the London train and cut for it? Baverstock turned his punt for home. He entered the school with a serious expression. He still didn't know whom he ought to tell first. Should he go straight to the head? Supposed it was the only thing. He made for the head's house and walked straight in. The head was in his room. He looked at Baverstock and waited for an explanation. I'm sorry about Dawson, sir, said Baverstock. And why? I think he's run away. By evening, the school was full of it. Everyone was talking. A search party was out. There were inquiries at the station. No one had any news. It was late before the school, in a state of sensation, settled down for the first night at last. Sorry, for the night at last. And Baverstock kept thinking what Dawson had said. I didn't know cricket was compulsory here. I'm going to show him it isn't. Early next morning, the word went round. The word went round that telegrams had been exchanged with Dawson's father, and one point was settled: Dawson had not reached home. His uncle had no message. If Dawson had run away to hide in the uh, to ride in the horse show, he had not done the obvious thing and gone to London. Furthermore, this was the day on which he had been allowed to ride. He would have had to do so, and he put in no appearance at the horse show. That afternoon they started dragging operations in the river without result, except that they fished up a lot of old cans and boots, and the head called his masters and boys together and said the search must go on throughout the district, but another day passed and no clue was found. Then another boy, Horridge, came to Baverstock and said, there's something that keeps worrying me. What's happening to Dawson's pets? Baverstock looked at him. He took some time to answer because, though he didn't show it, he was winded. At last, he said deliberately, I've been feeding them. Horridge said, oh, rather flatly, and walked away as if a good idea had proved a mistaken one. But Baverstock gazed steadily after him because he hadn't been feeding them. Nope, he hadn't. And so, who had? Dawson had no friends. He never allowed anyone to touch his pets, and nobody would know what food they needed. He was just not the sort of fellow to forget them. There was a jackdaw, and an almost human monkey. Baverstock wondered why it was that nobody had thought out this before, or thought of this before. 
He solemnly went to the outhouse amongst which the little witch hut. Whoops! Start that sentence again. He solemnly went to the outhouse among which was the little hut in which Dawson kept his zoo. Probably no one had been there since Dawson had disappeared. What would he find? He pushed open the creaking door. The monkey, on its long lead, began to chatter excitedly, but the jackdaw sat on its perch and looked wise. Bavistock advanced. They had fresh water. The jackdaw had fresh seed, and the monkey had fresh nuts. Bavistock stood, hands on hips, biting his lip. He had told Horridge he was feeding these pets for the simple reason that in Dawson's interest he did not want the fact made public that, if anybody was feeding them, it must be Dawson himself. But this discovery meant that Dawson was near at hand and in hiding. He must have cleared out the school in a half and was waiting, presumably until his temper recovered before he showed up again, in addition to which he meant to stay away from the Stanton Mix. Bavistock sat down outside to think, and presently Lester came along and paused to speak. Dawson must be. 
I'm sorry he's going to miss this match at Baderstock. The whole time I've been here, we've never beaten Staunton. They're the strongest school we play in this year. I've been thinking we really had a jolly good chance with Jawson and you and... Lester noticed this reference to himself, but he said nothing. I've just got one idea, said Baverstock. I'm going to do my best to get hold of him, but it's no use telling anyone otherwise that nothing will make him play. But do you think the head will let him play now, even if he does turn up? Yes, I do. He wouldn't have thought Dawson wanted to play, but he knows Dawson doesn't, and so he'll make him as a punishment. He's like that. And another thing, he won't want a lot of scandal here. He'd rather hush it up, and the best way of doing that is to let him play so that others don't imagine there's anything wrong. Well, is there anything I can do? Nothing. Except, said Baverstock, to say nothing about anything you see me doing. You may be puzzled, but keep it to yourself. Lester looked at him inquiringly, but said no more, and presently he rose and said, Well, if he doesn't come, you'd just better play. Baverstock looked, <laughs> Baverstock looked up to him surprised. Me? I'm afraid I'm pretty precious little use at cricket. <clears throat> you practice at nets anyway, and you feel pretty decently. I'd rather have a fellow of some sense than somebody who's unreliable. I dare say you can stick it for a bit, even if you don't make any runs. Baverstock still looked uncomfortable, however, for, with this promise, his position was made more difficult than ever. He would have to go to great pains to find Dawson, and yet, all the time, he would be trying to find the very fellow who would keep him out of the side for which he had never, to his grief, played yet. He wondered if Lester had thought of that. It was evening when, at the door of his dormitory where he stood in the shadows, Baverstock found himself face to face with Lester again. He was just slipping out, but Lester was coming in and their eyes met. Lester was about to ask the other where he was going, but at the last moment he checked himself. Possibly he had a shrewd idea. After that one look, Baverstock paid no further attention to the others, but quietly trotted down the stairs and out. Caution was necessary, for it was after roll call, and he had been found out of the house. Did his time... OK, start that one again. After that one look, Baverstock paid no further attention to the other, but quietly trotted down the stairs and out. Caution was necessary, for it was after roll call, and had he been found out of the house, his time at Mitford might be cut short. But he evaded the danger points. You see many pages. It's actually quite a lot. I might do this in part two, because it's actually getting really hot under this duvet. Um, okay, Baverstock's Pet Theory, part one, came to a close. Part two coming up shortly. It all began in a cabana in Havana Where I enjoyed a month vacation by the sea And neat the tropic sun I found the one and only one for me I learned to love in a cabana in Havana He even taught me how to rumble on the sand And how he'd look at me And softly say CC to all I planned Yeah, 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 yeah He would serenade on his guitar Toot, 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 toot And romance like only Latins do I, 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 I I remember when we kissed goodbye 
And I was so contented, I finally consented, I'd marry him in July. And now I sit in a cabana in Long Island and see a couple honeymooning by the sea. And it's my Latin love right there in a cabana next to me. And he doesn't give a darn up for this poor Americano. Next winter you'll be seeing me tobogganing and skiing far away from a cabana in Havana. I'm not 
worth something, only on the point, passes from me to you. Before that it's liability, after that it's useless. Look, sweetheart, I show you what this is.
beat it before I lose my customers. Je voudrais vous demander une chose. Est-ce que vous croyez aux fantômes Je ne sais pas, c'est une question difficile. Est-ce qu'on demande d'abord à, à un fantôme s'il croit au fantôme Ici, le fantôme, c'est moi. Euh, dès lors qu'on me demande de euh, jouer mon propre rôle dans un scénario filmique plus ou moins improvisé, euh, j'ai l'impression de laisser parler un fantôme à ma place. Paradoxalement, au lieu de jouer mon propre rôle, je laisse à mon insu un fantôme me ventriloquer, c'est-à-dire parler à ma place. Et c'est ça qui est peut-être le plus amusant.
Le cinéma est un art, une fantomachie, si vous voulez. Et je crois que le cinéma, quand on ne s'y ennuie pas, c'est ça. C'est un art de laisser revenir les fantômes. Alors c'est ce que, ce que nous faisons ici. Donc, euh, si, euh, si je suis un fantôme, c'est-à-dire si actuellement, croyant parler de ma voix, précisément parce que je crois parler de ma voix, je la laisse euh, euh, parasiter par la voix de l'autre, pas de n'importe quel autre, mais de mes propres fantômes, si on peut dire, à ce moment-là, il y a, il y a des fantômes. Et ce sont eux qui vont vous répondre, qui vous ont peut-être déjà répondu. Tout ça, c'est une... Aujourd'hui, ça doit se traiter, me semble-t-il, dans un, un échange entre euh, l'art du cinéma, dans ce qu'il a de plus, de plus inouï, de plus inédit, finalement, et quelque chose de la psychanalyse. Je crois que cinéma plus psychanalyse égale euh, science du fantôme. Vous savez, euh, Freud, euh, toute sa vie, a eu affaire euh, au problème du fantôme. Voilà, le, le, le téléphone, c'est le fantôme. Je vais Allô Yes 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 Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, there will be a, a small seminar uh, tomorrow afternoon. It's a kind of closed seminar, but you, you may come if you want. At 4, 4 and 15, uh, 15 past 4 p.m. Uh, Salle des Mm -hmm. And there will be another seminar on Wednesday, next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, I'll be very glad to meet you. Goodbye. Alors, ça c'était une, une voix fantomatique, c'est quelqu'un que je ne connais pas, euh, qui aurait pu me raconter n'importe quelle histoire, qui venait des États-Unis. Bon se présentant de la part d'un ami, etc., etc., etc. Bon, ce que Kafka dit de, dit de, de la correspondance euh, des lettres, enfin, de, de la, la relation épistolaire, ça vaut aussi pour la relation téléphonique. Et je crois qu'aujourd'hui, tout le, tout le développement de la technologie des télécommunications, au lieu de euh, restreindre l'espace des fantômes, comme on pourrait le penser. On pourrait penser que la science, aujourd'hui, la technique, bon, euh, laisse derrière eux l'époque des fantômes, qui était l'époque des manoirs, d'une de, certaine technologie de frustes, enfin, d'une certaine époque euh, périmée, alors que je crois au contraire que l'avenir est aux fantômes et que la technologie moderne de l'image, de la cinématographie, de la télécommunication est, euh, décuple le pouvoir des fantômes, le retour des fantômes. C'est au fond pour tenter les fantômes que j'ai accepté de, de figurer dans un film en me disant que peut-être, peut-être on aurait les uns et les autres la chance de laisser venir à nous des fantômes. Fantômes, fantômes de Marx, fantômes de Freud, fantômes de Kafka, 
fantôme de cet Américain. Vous Bon, moi, je vous connais depuis ce matin, mais déjà, vous êtes euh, traversé pour moi par toutes sortes de, de, de figures fantomatiques. Hein. Donc, euh, je ne sais pas si je crois ou si je ne crois pas aux fantômes, mais je dis, euh, vive, euh, vive les fantômes. Et, et vous, est-ce que vous y croyez aux fantômes Oui, certainement. Oui, absolument. Maintenant, absolument. fantôme de Freud tout à l'heure. Vous savez, les fantômes ne viennent pas, ils reviennent, comme on dit en français, ce sont des revenants. Ça suppose donc la mémoire d'un passé qui n'a jamais eu la forme de, de la présence. Mais euh, je me suis intéressé à une certaine théorisation que des amis psychanalystes, Nicolas Abraham, qui est maintenant mort, et Maria Toroc ont euh, élaboré à la suite de Freud leur théorie du fantôme par en fait euh, 
de euh, la théorie du deuil. Dans le deuil normal, comme dit Freud, on intériorise le mort. On prend le mort sur soi, on se l'assimile, et cette intériorisation, qui est en même temps une idéalisation, accueille le mort. Tandis que dans un deuil qui ne se développe pas normalement, dans un travail de deuil qui ne marche pas bien, en quelque sorte, il n'y a pas de véritable intériorisation, il y a ce que Nicolas Abraham et Maria Torok appellent une incorporation, c'est-à-dire que le mort est pris en nous, mais ne devient pas nous-mêmes, et il occupe une place particulière dans notre corps. Et il peut parler tout seul, il peut hanter ou ventriloquer notre propre corps, notre propre discours. Si bien que le fantôme qui est enfermé dans une crypte, en nous, nous sommes comme une sorte de, de cimetière pour des fantômes. Le fantôme, ça peut être aussi non seulement notre propre inconscient, mais plus précisément, c'est l'inconscient d'un autre. C'est l'inconscient de l'autre qui parle à notre place. C'est non seulement notre inconscient, mais l'inconscient d'un autre qui nous joue des tours, qui parle à notre place. Ça peut être terrifiant, ça peut être terrifiant, mais il se passe des choses. L'an dernier, j'étais il y a exactement un an, j'étais à Prague pour participer à des séminaires privés avec des philosophes tchèques dissidents, des philosophes tchèques interdits euh, qui ne peuvent pas enseigner dans l'université. Et j'avais été suivi tout le temps par la police secrète tchèque, qui d'ailleurs ne se dissimulait pas. Donc après ce séminaire, je me suis promené dans la ville de Kafka, comme si j'étais à la poursuite du fantôme de Kafka qui en fait lui-même me poursuivait, n'est-ce pas Je suis allé devant les maisons de Kafka, il y en a deux à Prague, puis sur la tombe de Kafka, et j'ai découvert le lendemain, au moment où j'ai été arrêté, prétendument pour trafic de drogue, que c'était au moment où j'étais sur la tombe de Kafka que la police secrète tchèque était entrée, alors que j'étais occupé avec le fantôme de Kafka, en quelque sorte, est entrée dans mon hôtel, et à euh, placer, à disposer les petits sachets de drogue dans ma valise pour m'arrêter le lendemain. Bon. Quand j'étais interrogé par la police, qui m'a demandé ce que je faisais à Prague, j'ai dit, eh bien, je euh, prépare un travail sur Kafka, ce qui était la vérité, euh, sur un texte de Kafka issu, extrait du procès, un petit texte qui s'appelle « Devant le bois ». Et si bien que, pendant toute cette séquence de l'interrogatoire, de l'emprisonnement, le fantôme de Kafka était effectivement là et les scénarios écrits par Kafka étaient en train de régler la scène, qui était une scène du procès d'une certaine manière, comme si nous jouions tous un film programmé par le fantôme de Kafka. Young artists, and they're sending a slider in with what they're working. 
and it's a sticking It's like a trend where we couldn't, you could literally have done a whole show, 25 people from the 150 division, whatever, so you could literally have done a whole show of sticks. Sometimes it's like. Why, why aren't sticks? Well, I'm just saying artists were sending in projects, you know, proposals, and there were some images of like gallery wall, the stick thing, like three foot long. That it must be a trend. No, no, no. All, all of that came from that pamphlet that they put out, and in that pamphlet they put out how to be an art teacher. And one of the things you talk about the, the how to be an art teacher pamphlet was put out by the the, the council, and and it was you discuss the relationship. So you consider here's the object. You consider the relationship here and the space and the void and the void and the space and the relationship with the angle of the stick. Oh, so that's why the freeze up there looks all the same. Yeah, right. why yeah. it's on the radio. <laughs> and you know what he's going to do? I know what he's doing. Yeah. He's going to uh, he's going to broadcast this one because it's quite interesting. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've got I've got a, a video of my mum on two days before she died. And I was videoing her in the hospital. I just took took on video. When did she die? About six years ago, I think it was about six years ago. But she looks up and she looks at the camera and she goes, "I know what he's going to do. He's going to sell this for a lot of money." <laughs> wow, she sounds like a very, um, very special person to be able to joke about. Well, one of one of well, she didn't a she didn't know she was dying, so it was there. It was just another hospital thing. But I'll give you the quick version of the story. Um, Partly how I came to resonance, because my mum died about six years ago, and she died in August. Her birthday's in May, and the next May that came round, um, it was my mother's the first birthday since she died. And I went to my studio, and I wasn't being kind of maudlin or hanging on it. It was May the 4th, I think. Yeah. May the 4th. My mother's May 21st, so it's why Her birthday? Yeah. Okay, so it was May. That, that, that May mother's thing. But anyway, yeah, I went went to the studio. So to speak, and I wasn't engaging in my work too much because it was the anniversary, my mum's birthday after she died, blah, blah, blah. And I was listening to Resonance, decided to go home, put Resonance on in the car. There was some country and western music as I was driving on the road. And as the country and western faded out, as the first beat of the next thing faded in, all the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And this kind of nanosecond realised it. And they paid seven and a half minutes of my mum telling jokes and laughing. And how did they happen? It was the pure happenstance of it happening in that 20 minutes. It was because, do you remember Underwood Street Gallery? Yeah. Underwood Audio One. Yeah. I had that on Underwood Audio One, and someone had plucked it out of obscurity and so played it in that 20 That's minutes. A very bizarre story. No, this is I've recorded it obviously before yeah, she died, yeah. not quite having that ESP quality that I'd like. So it just came off In pure happenstance, but stuff happens. Timing happens. Well, it's a kind of ESP, a blessing and a curse, isn't it? It's a real cliche thing because you can't believe that you you have these sort of uh, insights. But at the same time, they can be quite horrific and um, disturbing because you just there's certain things you don't want to know. I have it with some of my I students. I have to tune for it. Oh, cheers. You know, I have an insight a lot with students when I'm talking to students. And it sometimes gets very personal, you know, to, you know, to know things. And they always say, how do you know that? And I, I don't know. Um, perhaps that is a... An intuition. It's an intuition. Or experience. 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 I don't know how it works. I mean, even, you know, Freud and Jung fell out over that question of uh, an arbitrary... 
relations and coincidences or whether they were really truly synchronicities. Well, we, we talked about this the other night. Oh, yeah. Fabulous aeroplane yeah. story. Yeah. Have you heard his aeroplane story? Not yet. He'll tell you at some point. It's deeply personal and actually very moving. I've been considering it quite a lot. I've only ever told that story, as you said, to a hand, less than a handful of people. And that, well, and you right? be careful because that's recording right now. Yeah, that's recording. You might be telling it to the world. I'm not saying tell us a story again because I'm realising that because part of the part of how special it was yeah. because you said you told so few people yeah. and I understood why you told so few people because it's such an extraordinary story that you don't want to tell so many people no. because it kind of extends it off into the it's got to be the right situation yeah well. Otherwise, it Whereas sort of my, disappears into nothing. Yeah. Whereas I had an extraordinary timing story, which was so commonplace, I told it mediocrity. I blew all the fuses in my flat with a piece of broccoli the other day. Because um, I was washing some broccoli, right? Had my broccoli florets, and I thought, I've got to dry these, I'm going to hot wok cook them, and you've got to have them dry. Otherwise, it spits in your eye, and then it's all over, isn't it? So I put them in a towel and spun them over my head. All the water flew out, went into a light fitting in the ceiling that was open, and blew all the fuses. So I'm standing. And then the caretaker comes in and says, <laughs> See? This is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> This I knew that broccoli was thing. Yeah, I told you that broccoli was dangerous. This, this was actually at home, so I'm thinking maybe they're right. I am just fundamentally very dangerous. But I reset all the fuses, and it was only the night after. Someone asked me what the time was, and we looked, and the cooker was actually telling the right time. Now, that cooker goes on all the time, ever. And it was only telling the right time because I turned the mains back on at midnight. I can tell you a story. Broccoli. Just a very short one. <laughs> I had a bit of a shock this year, which led to me having a mini stroke. Um, I had a phone call where I told my mum, this one is coming from Germany, from her father's inheritance after the war. The Germans, we, uh, you know, what's the word, reimbursed uh, people who lost property. You know, and we had a bit of money, and they finally got to give her a bit of money. My sister had worked, worked it so that my mum come and stay with me. Meanwhile, she went to the bank and drew that money out. We found out that my sister had done that on this telephone uh, I, I had such a shock, my hair has gone, it's gone quite white from shock that my sister had done this. My mum put the phone down. At that very moment, I looked at my watch, the watch had stopped. My watch stopped. And it shows you that there was some incredible... Um, at that moment? Yeah, stopped. stopped at the moment that I found out my sister had robbed me. I absolutely was so shocking. Then my hair turned white and my watch stopped. A few days later I had a stroke. Oh my god. Yeah. It shows you the power of the current. Was it uh, a wind-up watch, an electric watch? Or it was a seconder like this. It, this is a, a copy of this one. Um, you know, it was quite a decent watch, not too bad. So what was it? Electrical watch. Electrical. So it's a battery. So maybe that. Um, I don't know how it works. How would that? How? Why on earth would my watch stop? Uh, it's got to stop at some time. Well, it stopped at that. Now you know the point is. The point is whether that's merely, as Freud would say, a coincidence, like rain starting when this conversation started. Yeah. Uh, you say, well, it's. Uh, you might have thought that the rain would start, but actually the rain just started. Anyway. Exactly. It's, the, it's nearly always that case that things happen. Yeah, and well, uh, there's so many things happening at any one time yeah. and always will happen yeah. that things are bound to happen yeah, that's what uh, Jane uh, Graham Harmon 
the philosopher Graham Harmon as well. No, Graham Harmon. You have been listening to Isotopica with me, Simon Tishko, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Hopefully you'll join me same place, same time, same lovely radio station. Next week, here on 104.4 FM, um, details of today's haunted episode are available on the website www.theculture.net. Thanks for listening. Simon Tishko. Signing off.